Hi, my name is Eugene Ponil of Ponil Studios, and you're listening to the SME Stories Podcast. You are now listening to the next great small business podcast. Welcome to the SME Stories Podcast, where it is all about small businesses in Canada. And here's your host, Ken Alfred. Hey guys, we got a great show today. We are in the art space today with Eugene Ponil of Ponil Studios. Eugene is a Toronto-based artist that creates intrinsically designed masks using cardboard as a sculpture medium. Born and raised in Toronto, Eugene graduated from OCAD, which is the Ontario Academy of Arts and Design, in 2004, where he studied industrial design. Since 2004, Eugene has straddled the line between contemporary art and commercial art. He started his career as a freelance mascot maker and, is, and currently works as a scenic sculpture in theater, as well as a teacher of prop making in Sheridan College. Eugene's exhibits, both a solo and group exhibits, go back all the way since 2004. Some of his notable appearances include CityLine, TVO, and various magazines and publications. Eugene and I have known each other for over 40 years, as he's actually 10 days older than me. Both of our parents are lifelong friends. We did martial arts together when we were kids. We played on the same hockey team when we were kids. So it's going to be an awesome chat. So sit back and absorb. All right, guys, we got Eugene Ponil of Ponil Studios. Eugene, how you doing, my friend? I'm well. How are you, Ken? I am doing good for this gloomy Saturday afternoon. It's raining here. It's the same. I'm right down by the Lake Ontario. It's, uh... Did you feel like when we got like that 14, 15 degree day not that long ago? Yeah, I was unable to enjoy it. How come? I was busy. Oh, that's what? I'm stuck in the shop. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. No, I, that's one of the few times I actually had off where I took, I think, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday off. And unfortunately, I didn't get to relax as much as I thought I would. So we have the kids at a March break camp during that week. And, uh, you know, Wednesday, I had like two episodes that I had to record with a few guests. Thursday, I was like, okay, I had to do stuff around the house, like had to replace all the you know, smoke detectors. And, and yesterday my wife took the day off, Mrs. K, she took the day off and we actually went out almost all day. The end of the day. So the kid, we went to my kid's acting camp. We enrolled them in acting camp. You and I both know we did martial arts back in the day, right? So my kids are doing martial arts pretty much the entire year, right? So I just wanted to come up with something. Well, you know, let's have something fun for them where it's not so, you know, serious and highly competitive stuff. So they did an acting camp and they did it and they, they had a play yesterday yeah. and uh, we sat there. It's like the first time we're actually seeing them perform. You know, Christmas concerts don't really count because they usually just do like one song or yeah. one little dance. This time they actually had to act a 15 minute play. Now, my kids have never done acting ever. And uh, I was very surprised. I was very proud. But I think the challenge of a March break camp, at least for the company we went with, is that the room acoustics did not very did not go well so you could not hear some of my some of the kids speak because you know some of them is their maybe their first time performing yeah so they might have their their scripts in from the listeners can't see this but i'm holding my hands pretending like i'm holding a script and they would either say their lines but because the mask is on them it's almost it's almost muffled like this not a lot of them really spoke loudly so you know we have to kind of like squint and maybe try to push our ears closer while they're performing. I actually close my eyes during the performance just so I can hopefully maybe turn on my hearing to see if it can get a better sense. But anyways, that's pretty much aside from that. So let's get back to the actual podcast, not about my kids trying to perform. So it's tough. I teach in a theater school, right? So 
in order to have all the, the students act in reverse, they have to sign waivers yeah. because they have to unmask. Oh, really? We didn't hold that. Yeah. Because everyone within the rehearsal hall and theater are not wearing masks, right? If you're going to sing and perform, you can't be wearing a mask, right? Yeah. So. I mean, I think it's going to be interesting once the mask, I think the mask mandates have been kind of disappearing. So yeah. hopefully by the time this airs, there'll be no more masks. But it's going to be weird because then people are not going to have to start, uh, you know, grooming themselves from the, you know, below the ice. Right. So, so guys like us who have beards, we might have to make sure it's somewhat kept. But, you know, aside from that. <laughs> All right. So Eugene. Ponell, Ponell Studios, what's your story? I guess going back to my old cat days when I was studying at art school, um, I got into to OCAD originally to become a painter, to be a fine art painter. My my goal was to be like another Picasso or Da Vinci and get into the art galleries and stuff. And uh, it just turns out that in my foundation year that my highest marks were in 3D. Like it just turned out I was a natural builder. So I figured it would be smart to just play that card. Um, and that's how I got introduced to industrial design, not really knowing what it was at the time, but seeing what they were doing in the shops and how much I enjoyed model making and building and stuff. So instead of painting, I chose to major in industrial design. Leading up to the late 90s, early 2000s, that's when industrial design started to kind of change. It was, it was starting to become less of a studio-based kind of industry and more computer-based. So everything, instead of designing and building in a shop, a lot of the stuff was being done on computers. And I just really enjoyed the space. Like I enjoyed the shop environment, wood shops, getting sawdust in my hair. And I just knew right off the bat, that's where I wanted to be, right? I sitting behind a computer for me is, I'm kind of like, in that sense, I just need to always keep moving. I'm very high energy. That sitting behind a computer, I think it would be detrimental to my health. It's good. Yeah. I just need it. I, for some reason, I don't see you in like a, a corporate office. No. You know, being in front of the screen or maybe just to do a meeting or so, but then you got to be moving somewhere else. Exactly. You got to go somewhere That's else. That's why like yeah. you, even prior to this, you and I trying to set up this Zoom meeting, trying to get all the buttons clicked and stuff. It's just like, <laughs> sure you can tell me where to go but like i'm not like i can send emails i could i do what i have to do on the computer but really i'm in a shop building things that's my space so um upon graduating i just knew that industrial design might not be the direction i want to go but yet there was a lot of value to what i learned in industrial design so i, I just kind of took what i learned and tried to see how i could apply that elsewhere that's how I got into uh, props making and, and uh, mascot making. That was my early, early career. Some of the mascots that you've made, and I, I was very surprised. Like, you've done so much work and you've designed so much stuff that I was like, holy crap, he's really good at this stuff. And Thank you. I think you did work for the Toronto Raptors. You did stuff for the UFC as well. Yeah, the UFC, Chuck Liddell. Uh, it's crazy. It's just like... How did you get in that? How did how did that happen? Did they just reach out to you or did you reach out to them? Or Well, so the way it works is I started working for a company um, and I was working for them full time and all the clientele went through them and me being their most senior sculptor, I just got all of the top gigs, right? More junior level sculptors will get like your basic character that's, uh, you know, just like I don't want to say easy, but like very basic shapes or whatnot. But when you get into the more like, we need a realistic 
you know, Chuck Liddell or a realistic or somewhat realistic looking Muggsy Bogues or whatever, like, <laughs> right. Those, those, those just came to me. And the thing is with the mascot industry, it's a big little industry, if you know what I mean. It's like, I like that. It's big in a sense that people don't understand the scope of mascot making, but it's worldwide. Every industry needs it. So we serve everyone from film, theater, um, like you have kids, right? They, they watch those kid programs and anything on Treehouse. And so we serve that industry, the entertainment industry, Cartoon Network. Um, when people think mascots, they just think sports. Yeah. They think of like the, the Toronto Blue Jay or the actual Toronto Raptor and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. That's, yes, that's, that might be the majority of the clientele, but it's just a part of it, right? Because like we also serve the toy industry. Anytime a new toy is designed, right? They want to promote that toy and then they create a mascot version of the toy, which then goes out to all the toy fairs. San Diego Comic-Con, all the Comic-Cons, right? Like, Yes. Isn't Comic-Con going on right now? Well, I mean, we're recording this in March. Happening right now, yes. Yeah, so we've yeah. done stuff for Comic-Con on... Um, Toronto Fan Expo, uh, even like the biggest, the San Diego Comic-Con, I made a Voltron mascot that went there, right? Uh, you and I grew up on Voltron, man. So. Oh, that's why I was looking through some of your, your collections. I was like, Voltron. My kids know nothing about Voltron. They'll be like, isn't that a Power Ranger? I'm like, no, it's not a Power Ranger. This is before Power Rangers came out. Power Rangers, they inspired, inspired by Voltron. That's People right. Like, I actually had this conversation with some of my students yesterday. You were talking about Power Rangers and I brought up Voltron. And they're like, sir, you're totally aging yourself. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, you gotta, you gotta respect where things come from, right? Yeah, um, exactly. But anyways, yeah. So, so yeah, that's in terms of like these clients, um, because it is a big little industry. It's big in a sense that we're worldwide and we serve every industry, but it's little because there's not a lot of players doing it. That was from when you were working at another company and then you kind of branched out, started, started doing your own thing, right? Yeah. So what happened was I was doing the mascot thing. Uh, like I've been doing mascots for 19 years, but seven or eight years of that in the right in the beginning of my career upon graduating from OCAD, I did that full, as a full-time job. That was my nine to five. And like any other job, doesn't matter whether you're uh, slinging burgers, making mascots or uh selling stocks, like every job comes with its BS, right? Now you just, you get into that groove of just like, okay, what else? I'm getting kind of tired of this. Not really tired of it, but just like. Stagnant almost. It was becoming stagnant. And the thing is when I started working, I always knew that. So going back to me becoming a painter, the artist in me never left, right? I always still just, I, I still wanted to paint. It didn't mean I completely gave it up just because I chose to study industrial design. I still, like, I, I studied art history till this day. Like, I always have art history in the background, so I'm studying different artists and their history and whatnot. When I was working as a mascot maker, the artist in me never left. I was always interested in making my own thing, right? Whether it was a sculpture or uh, a painting or whatever. And I just, I treated mascot making as a job. Right. Mm -hmm. As I should. So that way I can kind of separate myself from politics or whatever. I go in there. They tell me what I need to make. I get paid. I go home and I do my own thing. So I had a small shop, like a very, like in the beginning, just a room where I could just go and experiment. So after a day of making mascots, I can go home and paint or I can go home and draw. Right. And uh, 
because I, I really knew the importance of maintaining, um, like making sure that my name was separate from like the mascot making thing. Yeah. You didn't want to pigeonhole yourself, right? You didn't... I didn't want to pigeonhole myself and I was smart to do that right off the beginning. But that also meant that I was always, always busy, which was fine. It was great. Right. Like, so when I came home, I, I painted on a Friday night instead of partying, I, I paint. Right. Yeah. Well, I do a little bit of partying. Yeah. You got to have a little bit of a mix, you know? Yeah, um, absolutely. But I, I, I did that. And then eight years going, doing this full time, I just knew that, uh, I want to do more, more outside of the, the realm of mascot making. So I kind of bit the bullet. And then one day I was like, you know what? I'm at a level in the mascot making game where I know that they need, they still need my, if I quit, I knew that this industry still needed my service. So I chose to go freelance and that was a scary time because I wasn't sure how that was going to turn out. I don't think a lot of people realize that. I think uh, for some people, they, it gets to the point where either they're in a really, they're in a position where, you know, either they're stagnant or let's say the company culture is not the greatest. Like you said, the politicking, the BS, the red tape. And the thought of going on their own is might be something that they didn't even think about. Yeah. So when they, def- when they have to make that decision, they're like, oh crap, all right, what do I do first, right? So I know we're going to get to the tips from the pro segment later on, but uh, yeah, how did you, uh, when you made that decision, like what was going through your mind? I just knew that I, I was at a level where the company I was working for still needed my service, right? So I knew that if I went freelance, I knew that they would still need me. So I, I offered myself to them in that capacity as a freelance worker. So yes, I'm kind of quitting, but instead of working for them full time, um, I could still provide them my service on a freelance level. But then I just have to create my own studio, register my own name, provide my own tools, and then just use them almost like an agency. It's like they would bring in the work, send it over to me, and then I give it back to them. And then that's how I would get paid. And it worked out well. So the first year, the, I had to need enough money to invest in more tools in a bigger shop. And I just kind of started building from there, right? I think I remember seeing that on your social yeah. media before where you were hitting that phase of like you were going to expand, yeah. right? You said you need a bigger space Yeah, so it. It, just cut, it kept expanding, it kept expanding slowly. But the thing is with freelance, and I was prepared for this, is that not every year is going to go well, right? So it's like you may have an amazing year and then the following year is going to be half that. And uh, the same thing happens uh, week to week, month to month. So I might make a lot of money in one month, but then I might not see work for two months. So that was the one thing I had to prepare myself for. It's not for everyone. I'll be completely honest with you. It's uh, most people will be comfortable getting that paycheck every every week, every two weeks. That's their rhythm. I don't know. Some some people describe me as a masochist. Right? I'm, I'm okay with a little bit of pain. And I just had to endure that for a bit. Right. So, but I did that. I did full-time freelance for about three years and it got to the point where I'll be completely honest. It was just like, it was hard because, uh, there wasn't really a rhythm, you know, like, you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, especially for us being Filipino, all of our parents want us to have that stable (laughs) and secure job, right? So it's either in the business world or they want us to work in some type of healthcare field of some kind. And, uh, and, and I think I can imagine when, you know, you're starting to do, you know, the mascot making, I'm sure 
Parents probably okay with, okay, land nine to five, good. Hey, mom and dad, I'm actually going to go freelance. Yeah. Meaning what exactly? I can do whatever I want. I can do whatever I want and I'm out there swimming alone. But uh, (laughs) how did your parents react to that originally? To be honest with you, my parents are so supportive. Excellent. I'm so grateful to have parents like that because I've heard horror stories of uh, people who weren't even allowed to go to art school because they're like, oh, how are you going to make a career going going to art school? My parents right off the bat were never like that. When I told them I was was choosing to go to art school, ever since I was a kid, it was always supportive. They're just like, good for you. I'm very proud of you. Just keep on doing your thing. And then when I told them I'm going to go freelance, start my own business, it was the same thing. They're like, man, that's that's cool. Go for it. Like my parents know that I'm when I have an idea, I put my head down and I see it through. You know what I mean? And if it's going to fail, then I just keep on moving forward. And I don't, I don't, uh, I don't let that drag me down. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were 100% supportive. Right. So, um, so I never had that obstacle to deal with where I had to tell my parents, Hey, this is my plan. They just, my parents kind of know my attitude. They know my, they know I'm, I'm going to succeed as long as I put my head down and do what I have to do. Right. Oh, that, that's good to hear. Uh, and they, they seen that early on, like when I was living at their house, starting my early career, coming home, still working on my old thing outside of the mascot world. They knew that I was fully invested creatively. Like, doesn't matter what it is that I'm creating, creating, I'm fully invested in it, regardless of like, like, I'm, I'm not even thinking, oh, how much money am I, am I going to make up? on this painting. It's like, no, I'm going to paint because I just want to paint that thing. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Um, so they're very supportive in that sense, right? Hey, you, do you need a voiceover? Well, look no farther. Northway Capital Group has your answer. Commercials and explainer videos, AVR and voicemail, health and wellness, corporate training and e-learning, announcements, documentaries, and biography. Contact us on social media or email us at northwaycapitalgroup at gmail.com. Yeah, it's interesting. And so you've been doing your, your, your business for a while now. So like yeah. for this coming year and maybe next year, what, what kind of growth are you expecting uh, this year and next year? Well, it's, it's kind of weird because, um, so going back when I said I was going, I was working full-time, full-time freelance for three years, I got to a point where it was really, really rough. And that was because uh, I was independent. I was in charge of paying all the bills. I was in charge of gaining all the clientele, doing all the quotes, plus doing the work for the clients. And like most people- Juggling multiple things at once. Wearing many hats, right? And if, um, if there's one, one piece of advice I can give people is to, when early on, I kind of ignored this advice. I, I guess it might've been ego, right? So early on, uh, I would create a piece of art and then I'd think, hey, this piece of art is- I think it's pretty good and it, it should sell itself because it looks really good, right? But the truth is you got to take that art hat off and then put on the business hat. Everything that you make, you got to have that business behind it. You got to have that infrastructure behind it to sell it. Like you can grow the most in the way I see it is like any piece of art that I create, it's no different than like a piece of fruit. You know what I mean? It's, it's a, it's a product that needs to be sold, right? So I ignored that in my early career. And now it's just like, it's, I really focus on the business side, right? So I, I make sure that the things that I make, uh, that there is some kind of infrastructure behind it. Uh, I make sure that I could have the capability of selling it, showing it, 
right? Even though selling it isn't the priority, if I show it, then that's the important thing that builds the reputation and all that kind of combines into one business. So going back to growth, it was freelance. What I do, props making, it's, it's hard. <laughs> so it doesn't really, it's hard to say how much it's grown. It got to the point where I actually had to get a normal job, right? Just because it was so tough, but I wasn't just going to settle for any job. I wanted to make sure that I was building off of what I've done. So uh, I took all of my skill set and I applied that to uh, the world of theater. Right. So I started freelancing in the theater industry. So I had Planel Studio that's, that's still going, but then now I'm part of a union where I work for a number of shops. So everyone from the Canadian Opera Company, I work for Great Lakes Scenic Studios, who does all of the props and sets for the film industry, for the, the cruise ship industry. I work for a company called Paragon. They do all the stuff for Disney. Like there's Disney's Lion King, uh, right? Disney's Lion King, the, the, the Broadway production. Yeah. I work on those props and costumes and stuff, right? So we kind of transitioned from like 100% Punnel Studio freelance to this other thing where now I kind of work for all these other companies. Now Punnel Studio is more just for me. It's kind of, Instead of bringing in clients, Final Studio is now, I, am, I seem to be my, my own client. Now I tell myself what I want to make and I use that as a means to make art now, right? Yeah. And your, your portfolio is huge. Looking at all the different things that you've done. Yeah. That, that's what I said. I'm going to point that in the show notes that the listeners can really see this. You do a lot. Like, and, and like you said, the mascot thing, yeah, that was good. But then you, like you said, you have all these different product design things you've done. You've done like even just your basic drawings and stuff like that are also all there. You're definitely a creative. I can't imagine you in any other capacity. You know, I can't see you doing something else, but uh, you know, this is that, that's why. Now that you're, you're running your own thing and you're also, you're working in the theater industry as well. Like, I guess when some people think about like from an artist, they say, oh, well, what's the biggest expense these artists have to really focus on? And people think, oh, it may just be the materials that they have to use or the tools. Is there anything else that you, that people would be surprised to know that art, like creatives like yourself have to spend a lot of money on? Uh, I think our biggest overhead would be a shop, right? Um, the actual shop itself, right? The shop itself is expensive. Like right now, um, I don't have a shop at the moment. I was looking for a shop, a new shop before COVID and like literally the same month that uh, they called the pandemic. I was looking for a shop. Had I signed a lease that time, I would have been screwed. So thank God I didn't, yeah, thank God I didn't sign a lease. Now that the world is opening up, I'm looking for another shop. And the shop is going to be your biggest overhead. You need a space to get messy. Um, yeah. Especially for what I do. I mean, an illustrator, a painter can get away with a room in their house, right? Quite easy. Maybe have a nice sink right? A place to wash your stuff. But for someone like me that builds, I need an industrial space with different circuits because like one machine will kill the other machine if they're on the same circuit. Um, I just need that. That's my biggest overhead. And over the years, I've, even till this date before you and I started chatting, like I'm always on like Canadian Tire websites, Princess Auto, Home Depot. I'm on those websites on the daily always looking through their clearance items to see if there's something there that I 
I don't have yet. So over the years, I've built uh, an entire shop, mostly built on clearance items, right? So I, I wow. yeah, so that way I'm not spending full price. If I need to spend full price on a machine, that's because I need it right then and there to, to serve the job that I'm working on. Yeah. But majority of my stuff, I was very smart about it. Advice to anyone learning, wanting to build a shop, start now and uh, frequent all of those sites like Home Depot, Canadian Tire, buy clear and stuff as best you can because it's a, it's, it's a big investment. But now I have majority, I have all the stuff that I need now. So, so you have all your tools and all the machines. You're just now looking for that actual space to put it in. I, I just need the space right now. Yeah, I used to have, I, ha- I had like three studios prior to this. And then, you know, COVID. So I p- put a pause on that, which was fine because of freelancing. But sorry, going back to like you looking at my portfolio, like just to be honest with you, that's like, that's just half of it. Right? <laughs> of like, course it is. Yeah. you like, A lot of the stuff that uh, people don't see, I'm not even allowed to post. Right. Oh, because it's like a client yeah, confidentiality yeah, like, thing. Yeah. So it's like all the, no, there's none of my Disney stuff is on there. Right. So, uh, some of my proudest moments are in that world, but I'm not allowed to post it because protected by Disney or protected by Universal. Oh, I guess they might be afraid of someone like downloading the image and then trying to recreate it. And yeah, stuff like that. yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, yeah, there's there's a lot there. I can see them worried about someone like yourself if you weren't you and you were like as talented as you are and you see like if someone did post a Disney costume that you'd be like, yeah, I could probably make that and then you can make it. Yeah. Now, someone like me who has no artistic ability whatsoever I don't think they're worried about me trying to take that and trying to create it because they wouldn't, I couldn't do much with it. So, but yeah. uh, no, that, that's good to hear that, that you have that. And I assume when it comes to like the social media piece, I mean, your Instagram is pretty much your main yeah. thing to really display it there. Do you use any other medias as well? Um, I try to keep it to just Instagram, you know, Facebook is kind of, it's okay. I don't know if you know this, Eugene, but apparently Facebook is for old people like us. Yeah, apparently it is. the young people don't use Facebook anymore. They don't use it anymore. Instagram, yeah, it, it mainly just Instagram. I do have Twitter, but I don't even remember the last tweet that I tweeted. And it's just there, but I never check it. Instagram is is more my thing. I think so too. I think you just want to see pictures of like family, friends, colleagues, see how everything's yeah. going, yeah. kind of thing. And if you want to reach out, then okay, then you can reach out or use a Facebook or whatever. Yeah. But I, I might, I, I don't know, we'll see. Let's focus on getting a shop first and getting uh, more content up. And then I might explore the world of TikTok, but even that kind of gives me, a, even that gives me a little bit of anxiety. There's just right now, there's just too many things that I'm juggling. Yeah. Like I, I can understand why people have jobs just posting to social media. Because social media managers, like, right? Yeah. Exactly. Like I, it's, it's eventually going to get to the point where I will need that because mm-hmm. One, I don't really want to do this. <laughs> I do the social media side of stuff. I just, I just want to build the content. I really enjoy just building, you know? So. Yeah. I think I'm similar to you in that respect is that, you know, I have to, I'm responsible for my own social media for the podcast. So I'm posting a lot of these things. If all I can do, Eugene, honestly, is just, just this, like you and me just recording a podcast and just shooting the breeze. Yeah. And then I can just hand this off to an editor to edit it, hand it off to social media to, to post it for me. So then the only time I work is when I'm actually recording something. Yeah. That would be a nice dream. I have to admit that. Yeah. But until we get to that kind of, 
you know, where you where you can make hundreds of millions of dollars on podcasting, uh, which is not going to be that soon for me, then it might take me a while to get there. So yeah, yeah, same same year. So I'm just going to have to yeah, I'm just going to have to deal with what I have right now. But uh, let me go back to this. How big of a space are you looking to get? Because you've accumulated all this equipment and tools and stuff. So how big of a space are you actually looking for? At the moment, I'm looking two to three thousand square feet. Wow. Yeah. That's big. Yeah. Well, I like, I'm looking to expand. Bringing people on too, or just still going to be kind of. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking at expanding. And finally, like prior to this, I was just a sole proprietor. Mm. Me, myself, and I, now I'd like to bring in a few partners, uh, hire a few people. It would just make life a little bit easier. Um, it allowed me to expand on the type of things that, that I'm able to create. To do the fun stuff that you really enjoy doing, right? Yeah. Yeah, do the fun stuff and just have a team and have a good team behind it. And over the years, I've been meeting a lot of new people, a lot of trustworthy people. So there, there's plans on expanding. And also, I because I teach right now as well at Sheridan College, Sheridan teaching props making. I mean, there's a lot of candidates there too, right? That's what I was about to just jump on. I'm like, you got potentially new like people to bring on board. You got your, you your friggin' students that you can probably bring on board, yeah. especially the really good ones that you know, that can help out. And I'm sure uh, the stigma of, you know, artists graduating from school, you know, the question is, okay, so what are you going to do? What are the job prospects out there? And working with you, like a master of doing this for almost, you know, your freaking entire life, almost having that on their resume to, and to help you build your, your business even bigger than what it is now. And to give these people the experience to really, you know, get their hands dirty while they get their hands dirty pretty plenty. But I mean, like to really sink their teeth into this, and uh, I think that that's a great thing. Yeah, yeah. And then to be honest with you, I mean, I've been doing this for a very long time. And like, there are a lot of techniques and skills that I do know, but teaching some of these kids, sometimes they're doing things that is completely new to me, like a new way of seeing things, a new way of doing things. And it, it's really inspiring. It's like, I've never thought to do whatever that was, like, I, I never thought to do it that way. And here are the students showing me new, new tricks. And when I see a student do that, I'm like, okay, I'm going to keep my eye on this person. Cause this person clearly is going to go places, right? There's some, there's some really talented kids at that school. Now it's time for tips from the pro. This is part of the show because we kind of caught talked about a bunch, bunch of different things about the art industry yeah. and and you know your opinion on its current direction because you it sounds like there's so much out there for new talented people who wanted to get into this space and regardless of whether it's mascot making or prop making or anything else that there's a lot of room for there. So now we're going to take the eyes of okay, so now I'm an art student or let's say I graduated and I want I do want to start my own kind of thing and now we're going to ask you the pro that's been doing this for a while. Okay. So what kind of service offerings should I have a diverse service offerings to start with when I want to, you know, start my own thing? Should I jump into sculptures or paintings, products, mascots, props? What, should I offer all of it or should I maybe just focus on a couple of things? I think my advice to a young artist is to experiment with it all. Get your, your fingers wet in as many different skill sets as you can. Then try and specialize in at least one. Like make that your speciality, but by having experience in many different um, different avenues within the creative field will allow you to be more uh, versatile and being employed. Like for me, yeah, I, I'm a props maker, 
right? And I specialize in the sculpture and carpentry. Like those would be my two specialities, but I do it all. So when there's not enough work in props making and carpentry, I can easily transition into paint. So like all the theater sets that we build, I'm building all, all the props that are on stage. I'm building parts of the, the scenic, the scenery that's on stage. And then when that work's kind of done, I could transition into painting all the backdrops. So there's that. So I would say, uh, do a little bit of it all. So it's on, it's on your, on your resume that you can't, if need be, you can do that job. But specialize in at least one. Yeah, like niche down almost, right? So you yeah, kind of like build this it up. Is, this is what I do, but I could do it all. But this is the one thing that I'm uh, a specialist at. So Excellent. going back to my sculpture, me being a specialist in sculpture, there's not a lot of people that specialize in foam carving, right? And I just, turns out that uh, that's what I've been doing for the last 20 years. And uh, I've been able to apply that to many different industries, right? Like it started as mascots sculpting foam heads for mascots, but then that grew. So then that became props and scenic displays for uh, amusement parks. You know what I mean? It's the same material, same characters, but it uh, displayed in a different way. So instead of being this useful mascot head, now it's just this sculpture that's like part of, you know, a National Geographic uh, amusement park kind of thing, right? <laughs> um, which I did, right? Um, Universal Studios, like a statue or whatever, right? It just kind of, you have to see the skill set and see how you could apply it, mm -hmm. right? So, but the thing is going back to industrial design was that these are the same skill sets that I learned in industrial design, but instead of like applying these skill sets to the, the design of your everyday products, like furniture and remote controls and cell phones and stuff, I just took that skill set and applied it to theater and film, right? So yeah, just, um, I think there, if there is one piece of the, probably the most important piece of advice I can give someone is to make sure you are doing this for fun before anything else. Like don't even think about the money, like just make sure you're doing this for fun because by doing it for fun, you're just going to build a portfolio naturally. Like if you realize solely on the projects given to you by your instructors, rely solely on the projects given to you by your employers. Your portfolio grows at a very slow rate. But if you are doing stuff for fun on top of that stuff, your portfolio grows, you know, it, it, it just grows very quickly. Even though you're not making money on the things that you do for fun, that still has a value in your portfolio, which will get you another job. You know what I mean? It's like it, yeah. your portfolio is probably your most important thing, your most important tool as a creative, right? Okay. No, that's perfect. So are there any like niches or any type of things within the art industry now that there is a big demand for it, but people, you don't see a lot of artists jumping on that bandwagon because they might be only thinking of certain things, whether it's painting or sculpting or because I came from the traditional art school, mm -hmm. right? Where people were there to create their own content, very gung-ho. This is my cre creative, very anti-capitalistic, like, like the hardcore artists. Okay. I think the truth is that times have changed where those dreams of just like, I'm going to be an artist, I'm going to be a rock star artist and just make art, do the gallery scene, make hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. And I, there are artists like that. 
that make tons of money solely on just their art. But the, the fact of the matter is that's not the reality for everyone, me included, right? So you have to know how to juggle that act. And you, sometimes you have to learn how to forfeit that ego at times. You know what I mean? It's, um, so for me, it's like, I know where that, that fine line is where Ponyl Studio meets the industry, mm-hmm. right? So it's like the stuff that I need to make for industry, even though it is safe for Disney. For me, I still treat that Disney job as a job and not my voice. It's like, if I'm going to be told, asked to sculpt a model of a Toy Story character, yeah, it's artistic, but it's, it is still the voice of Disney. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I am, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with separating my name from that. I'm okay for Disney to put their name all over this stuff. And then Eugene Parnell, the name goes right to the very bottom and, and not even spoken of. And yeah, I swallow my pride and say, yeah, that's okay. I got paid for that gig and I have that piece in my portfolio. Disney doesn't even have to mention my name. Okay. You know what I mean? Paragon didn't have to mention my name. But that's why I have Ponyl Studio where that's me. That's f- everything I do in there is for me. That's my name. My name sits right at the top. Yeah. So I have those two areas to play and they've understanding where I draw that line. So I think the classic artist needs to understand that in order to make a career off, off of this, they have to be able to do that. Mm, oh, I see yep. what you mean. So it is kind of like, as you said, check your ego at the door kind of thing. So you yeah. can still, you can still do both. Like you said, land yeah. a job. Where, yeah, it may be a nine to five creating something for yeah. a client or something, but you can still do what you want to do on the side yeah. to, to really, so you're, you're not going to get that stagnant feel that we talked about in the earlier yeah. parts. Exactly. Okay, so that's what I'm saying. So, so when yeah. I say niches, yeah, so I'm saying you can still do anything that you want to do. Exactly. Just balance it out with, you know, getting some, landing a job or landing a career. Or just landing somewhere where you can get started. Okay, no, that, that's great. Yeah, and does that make any sense? It's like, yeah, when no, you, no, when that's, perfect. that's niche, perfect. It's, just, it's hard, man. It's, uh, but that's the thing. Like, I've worked with enough people and I've worked with enough disgruntled artists because they were doing that stuff on the side and they were, they were relying solely on satisfying that creative, uh, that, that creative side of, uh, of their, personality to to be taken care of within a company after several years of doing that that can get tiring especially for creators yeah yeah, but if you just keep on doing that and not doing your own thing on the side then you start to become disgruntled you start to not really care about your job and it's just then it just becomes just the job oh i see you know what i mean but for me i i I understood the difference i understood that that was never going to change and that i had no control over what i was going to be asked to do while working in an industry so that's why i started ponyl studio so that i have that space excellent right so and that i turned that into a business right oh that's great yeah all right the next question here so all right man i'm gonna start my own business what should be the first piece of equipment i should buy first uh, depends on what kind of business you're, you're, you're starting. It'll really all depends. It's, you know, if you're starting a painting business, obviously like a good set of paintbrushes. If you're going to start as a props maker, invest in a really good set of pliers and invest in a really good 
table saw is a good one. A, a, a bandsaw is a good one. I actually, it's funny that you ask this because I actually had this conversation with my students yesterday. I was teaching them how to sculpt and I was teaching them how the difference between a good uh, awful blade and a bad one, right? Um, investing in the right tools. So it's kind of the question you're asking me is kind of general in the sense that like, you know, a painter will need tools that a sculptor may not need, right? Mm. And uh, so the actual first tool that you buy is kind of, uh, it really all depends on what you're getting into. But I will say this, that all tools, I'm a firm believer that all tools have souls, right? So treat your treat your, your tools with, with care. And if you treat your tools with respect, they will do good work for you. And um, the smartest piece of advice that I was given by my best friend's late father, who also graduated with me at OCAD, at the Ontario College of Art and Design, uh, he ended up studying photography. I mean, because he's a photographer. He studied photography. Uh, so after graduating, his dad told us the smartest thing you could do is to invest in yourself. Right. So investing in yourself means investing in good tools. Right. So for the young artist, oftentimes students struggle on being able to afford a certain tool. Right. I, I urge them to just buy that tool because buying that tool is an investment in yourself. It's an investment in the things that you're going to create. And I always tell the story that when I was 15 years old, I was working part time at McDonald's. I think my paychecks were. Oh my God, I was coming out with like 40 or $50 paychecks. Like that was, that was like my pay for the week, right? Uh, I had an art project due and I needed a specific paintbrush from the art store and the paintbrush was $50. That was like the total sum of my entire McDonald's paycheck. <laughs> and wow. at that time I was like, oh my God, I can't afford this thing right now, but I needed to complete my painting. So I, you know, I just said, screw it. I'm going to do it. Uh, Paid for that paintbrush. And that was, we're going back to like 1995, right? Yeah. I was 15 years old. That's before cell phones, man. I think before we had cell phones. Yeah. It was in pagers, was the thing. I had a pager, yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, so I bought that paintbrush. Fast forward like something like 25 years, I had a moment where I was at Paragon and I was painting scenery for Disney's Lion King. And then I, I just had a moment with that paintbrush. I was like, huh. I remember when I bought this paintbrush and I remember buying this for $50 on a McDonald's paycheck. And here it is 25 years later, painting things for Disney. Wow. You know what I mean? And it's like, so it's hard to say what specifically, what tool to buy. All my, my only advice is to invest in yourself by, if you need that tool, get it. It will stay with you. Yeah. Right. And absolutely. that's when going. Yeah, going back to me always uh, going on to Home Depot or Canadian Tire websites, looking at the clearance items, that's me just still adding to that same collection of tools, one being that one paintbrush. That's part of that fit, the, the entire family of tools that I have, right? Yeah. Um, and there's a value to that. These tools, the, the better, and that's why it was so expensive is because it wasn't your run-of-the-mill paintbrush that you bought for $10 at Canadian Tire, which you're going to use to, you know, paint the corner of your room. Yeah. Right? It's a very this specialty like a, brush. It's a specialty brush. It's a very specialty brush that costs $50. And 25 years later, it's still to the same quality that it was when I originally bought it. So it's, it, 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 it's worth saying, buy what you can afford at the time. 
Right. And if you really enjoy what you're doing, expect to upgrade that. Just like with everything else, a car you buy, a computer you buy, you're going to eventually upgrade. Same thing happens with your tools. So yeah. um, don't be scared to buy that tool for yourself. Yeah. Regardless if it's like uh, a woodworking tool, if you choose to do carpentry, a sculpting tool, if you choose to do sculpture or a painting tool, if you choose to be a painter, right? Like buy that tool. It's an investment in you. Oh, that, that's right? good to hear. Right? And like, I think like I mentioned this on a previous episode is that for what we specialize in, we're very picky with certain things, right? Like mm -hmm. in your case, you're very particular with the type of art that you do whatever tool required, whether it's, you said a bandsaw or something like a, a woodworking tool, or even just like you said, a brush, you're very particular with it. I use yes. the same thing with microphones. I have four microphones. So I'm very particular with the type of microphone that I use. So I could, could I buy a $20 microphone on Amazon? Yeah. Will it give me the same quality as this more expensive microphone? No, but I can justify that to be like, okay, but at least I'm using what it's meant for. And this has been one of my favorite microphones to be using it all time right now. So I'm very happy with that. So what do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, exactly. Totally. Or in Mrs. K's opinion, she's a, she's a physiotherapist at a hospital is, uh, they do a lot of manual writing. So she's very particular with pens. There you go. Yeah. yeah. And same with yeah. me working in an office too. I'm very particular with mice, keyboards, monitors, office chairs. I have to be very particular with that. So <laughs> enough about all those different things here. So let me ask you another question then. So how big, I know you touched on this before, how big should your portfolio be before you start, you know, putting yourself out there where you're trying to land clients? It's hard to say. I mean, I have a lot of stuff in my own portfolio. It's, it's hard to put a number on how many pieces you should have in your portfolio. Like, just like a gallery, if you're going to, if you're going to show your art in a gallery, say, if you're going to do a uh, paintings in a gallery, we tell you, you should have a minimum of 10 pieces in that gallery space to have a solo show. The same could apply for portfolio is 10 solid pieces. But I, I, I urge people getting into this that like, I think your goal in your portfolio is to ideally, you know, when you're starting off, obviously you're going to have to start with what you have. That being a lot of, a lot of student work stuff you did at school. But ideally, you should aim to omit the stuff you did as a student, right? If like, you should constantly review your portfolio, look at your piece, see, is that relevant to what I'm doing today? And if not, let's get rid of it. Let's replace it with something else, right? Um, so as a young person, I think you should strive to, uh, not to say that your student work is bad, but if you could push your student work out and replace it with industry professional stuff, professionally made stuff, uh, that would be your goal. That shows that you're actually doing stuff within the industry. And it's, um, yeah, because like the longer that your student work stays in your portfolio, it shows that like, it, it just shows a, a lack of growth, I guess you could say, right? Like 10 years into your career, I don't think you should be having student work in your portfolio. What I mean? Mm -hmm. um, and if you do, it shows that you're not really doing stuff on your own. You're not doing stuff for fun. It really shows initiative when you, when you don't have that kind of stuff in your portfolio. Yeah. I mean, it, it's got to be, if it is a student piece, it's got to be really good. Yeah, like a 100% A plus marking from a very good professor kind of thing. Yeah. yeah and it's and then probably sold to a client. You yeah. know what I mean? Like it's, it's going to be that good. But I think your ultimate goal is to omit your student work because really student work is nothing more than 
experimentation. But yeah. I think you're eventually you should be striving to create your own voice. Absolutely. Yeah, and, you know what I mean? Yeah, because on a previous episode I had, we had a hair and makeup artist uh, and she was saying, your portfolio needs to be as big as you can possibly imagine, right? As yeah. big as you can to show all the different skill sets that you have. So yeah. I think, yeah, you're on, you're on that same boat. It should be as big as you can, minimum 10, but preferably non, you know, student work. Yeah. So, okay. Oh, that, that's a good one here. And, and quality, quality stuff, you know, like in a, in a good mix for me, I like, I have a good mix of, um, like, like I said, what you see online, what you see on my Instagram, what you see on my personal website, it's almost all 100% me. There are a few mascots on there, which are just, that's stuff I did for clients, but I try to keep that at a minimum. Mm-hmm. And most of the other stuff, like the Disney stuff that I've done, uh, Universal Studios stuff. Uh, prior to the pandemic, I did stuff for National Geographic. Like, you don't see any of that. <laughs> I'm not allowed to show any of that stuff, but I'm, I'm 100% allowed to show it as a portfolio. So when trying to land jobs, that's where right. I would. I so would, you can show it to that. But you I can show it like- to that. You yeah. can't post it online. So I can't media. post it okay. online because then it seems like I'm trying to put my name on something that is Disney owned. So I right. I'm not trying to step on anyone's toes, especially not at Disney. Yeah. There you go. They've, <laughs> got, they've, they've been good to you, man. So yeah. They've been good to me. Yeah. So, so um, right. I want to step on their toes, right? So n- another question I got here. So like when you're producing work for a client, yep. um, is there any, like, especially if you're freelancing it, do you, is there any special insurance you have to have with that or is it, uh, not if you're a sole proprietor. Okay. Well, so, uh, if, if a client comes to me directly and says, mm-hmm. Hey, like, like I just did a piece, uh, I can't really speak of it cause it still hasn't been released, but, um, I just did a piece this week, like quick turnaround. We need it in a week. Uh, good, good pay, but like short turnaround. Um, so Sorry, the, the question again was, um, is there any special insurance that a new artist should have, you know, when producing work for a client? Yeah, so that is, so that stuff that I do, that's still on a sole propriety basis. So no, I don't need any insurance to do that. Uh, if I bring anyone on, then yeah, I have to get WSIB. Even if I bring one person on that I'm paying, um, I have to get WSIB to make sure that they are protected, they are safe. If there's any kind of injury, and believe me, I like, I've been doing this long enough that I have seen for every injury you could think of except for death. Like, Oh I've my seen, God. Yeah. Really? Yeah. It's, it, it is what it is, right? I've seen people cut their fingers off. I've seen, I had to, I saw someone go, go up in flames and I, oh had, to, my I, had, I had to put them out with a fire extinguisher. Um, lots of like mini explosions, electrical fires, uh, concussions like i've seen a lot right so yes you do need insurance but as a sole proprietor no you don't you you you're, just operate you're, you're, you're almost making the case for everyone to go back into painting so <laughs> to do anything else but no, no I'm, I'm kidding i'm kidding no, no, of no. course oh, yeah. no the thing is it's like but but when i do work because i i'm part of a union so i'm yes. equal so under this umbrella there's a, a number of companies that work under the umbrella and they basically share the employees so right. i could be working for the canadian opera company for like three or four months and then my contract ends and then i jump over to paragon where i'm doing stuff for disney and then my contract ends that is all under one umbrella the union umbrella 
And mm-hmm. yeah, they had their insurance were protected through our union. And I feel very safe. Like I had this, con- again, I just had a conversation literally yesterday with my students uh, talking about the, um, uh, the differences between a union shop and a non-union shop. Both have their pros and cons, right? Uh, but I think the biggest pro when working for a union shop is safety, right? They, they have their insurance, they have their safety protocols in place. I mean, uh, we just dealt with, we just all witnessed that whole Alec Baldwin situation. Yes, yes. And very, very unfortunate. Very unfortunate. But like the, the reasoning behind that, I mean, it hasn't gone to court yet, but they were trying to get non-union workers. Oh, geez. To work. Right. And, and with non-union work, non-union workers, you can't trust that every safety protocol is being followed, followed. Whereas with a union shop, it's like, it's set in stone. It's like, you could trust that your next union member will follow this, the same procedures. Right. Okay. Um, and as a prop, I'm a props master. Had that been me on that set, I would have been in that court case. That would have been involved in that. That would have been me, jeez. Because it would have been, it would, it would have been me who was supplying the guns. Mm-hmm. Like here are the guns; they're all safe, right? And if someone got shot, my name would be in that lawsuit, right? So uh, I use that as, as a lesson to my students to um, don't overlook the simple things that you think might be innocent, but you know, at the end of the day, it could cause a lot of harm. So yeah, there are insurances that are needed. Uh, as a sole proprietor, no, but once you bring even one person in, yes, you have to have. Do you mind if I ask, like, I know you can't, if you can't disclose the fee, but is, uh, you talked about their pros of either going to like a union shop versus a non-union shop. Is it something that uh, you recommend new ones to start maybe in a union or maybe do a a bit of both? And is it something that you can give them a ballpark of, obviously, because when you're part of a union, you have to pay certain fees, right? To stay as part of that union. Is it something, is it, no, you don't have to tell us the exact number, but is it a, a, Big fee, moderate fee, small fee to stay? It's not too bad. It's, uh, we, we pay uh, quarterly, okay. quarterly fees, right? Um, and that's regardless if we're working or not. And right. then uh, as we're working, they take a certain percentage off of our paychecks that go towards our union fees as well, but up to a certain amount. So I think it's something like if I'm working throughout the year, and every company is taking a little bit off, a little percentage off to pay my union dues. It gets capped at five hundred bucks total. Five hundred bucks total just for that portion, plus my quarterly fees. Right. right. So um, it is. It's not bad, um, but it's not going. It's not going to kill you. But right. then, at the end of the day, uh, it, it's. I don't know. The the union is almost like they act almost as like an agency. Right. right. They're the ones that ensure you the work. When work is available as a union member, you get priority. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and then, yeah. So uh, I do. The thing is, with when working in film and theater, a lot of the stuff is kind of most of the most of the shops are through unions. So you kind of can avoid the whole union thing. Yeah. And maybe we'll get a link to uh, maybe the union website. If anyone, if any listeners are interested in like thinking about, should I join a union? Maybe I'll ask you to email me the, the link there was, or something that we can just point the listeners to so they can make their decision. I mean, so, it's the same union throughout, like even throughout North America, right? Oh, it's, really? uh, yeah, it's, I mean, different local, but same union. 
right? Okay. So all the stuff, all, all the stuff that's done in film, same union as the people that work in theater, the people who work in Hollywood, the people who work in Broadway, right? But it gets all the union, just different locals, different, uh, uh, different local chapters. Yeah, exactly. Okay. What is, in your opinion, the best strategy to deal with potentially difficult clients? <laughs> He's laughing. Okay, yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> pardon me for being cheesy, but there are a lot of things that I learned when I was a kid working at McDonald's. Oh, right? Okay. Okay. And, and yeah, uh, yeah, a lot of the stuff that I learned there really it still stays with me. And one of them, pardon me for being cheesy, is a man service with a smile. <laughs> service with a smile. Service with a smile, you, you, you do your best to accommodate their needs and wants. Um, and you, you play that role. Not all, some clients are going to be nightmares. Some clients are going to be a breeze, but you have to accept all of them as being the same and same service to all of them within reason. It takes practice to learn when to say, sorry, no, that's not possible. I, uh, either because one, it's not within the budget. And if you need that, I need to add extra. Or two, because you're asking me to make a change and this thing is due tomorrow. So sorry, no. So understanding when to say no with a smile. You know, no, no with a smile. There we go. <laughs> Love it. Love it. Yeah. So like it, expect it. You're you're dealing with people who they they want certain things, things change. Like I was just dealing with a client just this week, right? And uh, the client was trying to make make changes as I was putting it in the shipping box. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, you know, when it's basically done. When it's basically done, the boxes are re-taped up. I was literally like dropping it in the box and he was asking to make changes. But, you know, I, I said no with a smile. It's just like, sorry, at this point. You know, I know you, you need it by a certain date and in order to get it to you, then I need to ship this thing right now. And right now there just, there is no more time for changes. So the thing is you serve them with a smile. If they're difficult in that sense, just keep on smiling because it's like, it really is hard to maintain relationships with clients, right? So I think that should be your priority is to just make sure that that client is happy because like. Uh, you'll get more work from them later down the road. So um, yeah, and and don't take that one experience with this client as uh, you know it may be a little bit rough in the beginning because it may was your first work your first piece you're working on them with. Yeah, but that you said you know they might have some unrealistic expectations that you have to level set yeah. to say okay we we can't do it for this one. But like you said if you service it with a smile, you know they can potentially give you more work because at least your professionalism of it exactly right exactly. And learning when to say no, um, it also it provides them with a certain expectation. So like the next time around, they know what to expect from you and they know what is needed and what can and can't be done. So they, they start to understand more of the process because a lot of them are not in the know. Yeah. A lot of them are, they're just like, I'm the guy that was hired to find you. Right, right. To build this thing. So I do like, they're, they're essentially the middleman or the middle person, right? Yeah. Um, so they're just, oftentimes they're just asking the questions that are given to them by their bosses. Right. Right. So it's, it really comes down to practice. And as for someone who is getting into this, expect to take a loss in the beginning. Mm. If you say you can do something you and you didn't, you didn't have the budget, 
you didn't add any extra fees and you know you should have but now they're kind of you know it, it would it, it would it might ruffle some feathers if you ask for a fee to add on a fee later down the road sometimes you have to be willing to accept the fact that you're going to lose a bit of money on on a project right which is which is fine um especially in the beginning right especially in the beginning i think ideally the most important thing is to maintain a relationship with the client and then and then adjust the next time around in a just again i've been doing this for nearly 20 years yeah i'm not perfect at it but i am better than i was when i started when i started like you know uh, what's his face? Uh, the guy who started Virgin Records, Rancid. Like he he named his company Virgin because him and his partners oh, didn't uh, know Richard a single Branson? thing about what they were doing. So they called themselves Virgin Records because they were new to this. And I was the same way when I jumped into this. I didn't <laughs> know anything. I just kind of rolled with the punches, right? And um, I'm a better person for it now. You, you, you expect to make the mistakes. And embrace your mistakes. Embrace them. They're so valuable. Like, especially if they're, they're, they're an owner or they're a sole proprietor, they feel like they can never be wrong. They can never admit if they make a mistake. Oh, admit your fault. Please oh, yeah. like, admit it. It's, so, it's one of the most valuable lessons. It teaches you how to check your ego. It teaches you that you're just human. It teaches you to be humble. People will see it and it allows you to build relationships and you can check those things at the door. Yeah. Right? Um, do you have like a very funny, I guess, uh, story related to while you're working on your business? Could be a client interaction, could be something you're working on, totally misshaped something that you thought was supposed to be one thing, but it was supposed to be something else. Any funny story that you can relay to the listeners? Okay, this goes back to when I was working full time as a mascot maker. This is actually quite a funny story. And this goes down to, yeah, going back to the whole Alec Baldwin thing of making sure you pay attention to the details, right? And it, like that's that was a very dark example where someone just forgot to ch- check the barrel of the gun, mm-hmm. right? But for me, it, it's sometimes it's as innocent as forgetting to put a chin strap on a mascot. Oh, really? Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's like pay pay attention to the details; they matter. So they literally could have just turned the head; the head could have literally fallen off. <laughs> so what happened was you remember the character Babar? Yeah, yeah, I remember Babar. Yeah, the elephant. The elephant. Yeah, we made a whole bunch of these. They were gonna show up at like malls or whatever, and like this big experience of meet Babar, right? Yeah. I had forgotten to put a chin strap on this one particular Babar head. And uh they created this full set. Right. Oh. I don't know if you remember that intro to Babar. He he comes out. And he's standing on top of like this staircase yeah. or whatever, right? They recreated that whole experience. So like a staircase and Babar came out. And because I had forgotten to put the chin strap on, he came out the door and then the head fell off. And in front of all of these kids, oh, the hand, no. and the hand started rolling down the stairs <laughs> towards the kid to their horror. <laughs> wow. And that was as simple as me just forgetting to glue the chin strap. So pay attention to the details, folks. Yes, that's a very, <laughs> that's a very important thing. So you're so busy with a lot of things. So how do you balance? Because as for a lot of small business owners, they always have that hard time balancing work, like they have that work-life balance. How do you, or is there any tips you can give 
listeners how you're able to, as a creative as well, balance everything. Because obviously you, you, you can, I guess the listeners can tell that when you're working on a project, you're like you said, heads down, you're focused on it. So how do you balance it with, you know, family, friends, significant others and all that sort of stuff? How do you balance it all? I'm, I'm getting better at it. I've gotten a lot better at it, to be honest with you, in the last few years. When I first started, it was, it was kind of tough. I was, it was literally just me, fully invested. Didn't really see my friends that much. Um, it was tough. It was just like, I was always in my shop and I was, I was kind of avoiding everything else. But I knew the importance of, of having a, a, a work-life balance. And then it just means that you just got to understand and know your expectations, but also let the people, your loved ones, the people around you know that because of the nature of what I do from time to time, this will happen where I'm going to be in the shop for an X amount of time. Like I just finished that job. It was shipped just a few days ago, but I was doing that extra commission on top of the fact that I'm teaching Mm -hmm. full-time at Sheridan College, right? So I would work a little bit after teaching plus full-time weekends. So, you know, my girlfriend is fully aware and she knows that from time to time, I'm going to have to be in the shop for like a week or two at a time, right? As long as the people around you understand that, and then you can't find a a good work-life balance. Um, When I really started right in the beginning and I needed some time with my friends, because of the nature of what I do is creative, Sometimes I would invite a, f- a few friends over, um, like, hey, I'm, I'm busy working on this project um, and I haven't seen you in a while. If you're up for it, why don't you bring over a six pack? Let's listen to some beats. We could still hang out. We could watch sports that's in the corner while I do my thing, mm-hmm. right? Uh, that's how I got around. That's kind of the benefit of being a creative. Yeah. It's like, so if a friend comes over with a six pack to hang out, they're watching you work, yeah. you know, like watching me create something is entertaining, right? Yeah. So I, and that's how I, I got around finding that down. Have you ever thought about starting your own YouTube channel of you building stuff and then just fast forward, you know, like some of those people with it to get from like the before to the afters and stuff like yeah. that? Maybe, maybe maybe not for like the commercial work that you do, because obviously that for clients perspective, yeah. but, you know, for your own personal stuff, have you thought about putting your own? your own YouTube channel or something like that. So you can I thought about it. Like, I mean, I'm a big uh, fan and follower of Adam Savage, the, uh, okay. oh, yeah, heard yeah the, the Mythbuster, Mythbuster guy. guy. Yeah. So he yeah. has his own YouTube channel called tested and it's exactly that. Like, and it's like everything that he does on his show is stuff that I do in my life. So some of his, some of his programs are him building something start to finish, but then other episodes are just him about shop infrastructure. Like how to yeah. properly organize your, your tool chest. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, so I have thought about doing something similar, but I think at the moment I'm going to, it's, it's not, it's not going to leave. Uh, the idea is not going to leave, but I'm going to mm-hmm. put a pause on it until I get my own shop. Yeah. It make up. more sense. Yeah. And then I'll think about it. Had your girlfriend ever like, when you guys are ha- actually finally getting her to hang out and stuff, does she ever be like, you're on Home Depot again? Canadian Tire again. <laughs> How many chisels do you need, Eugene? Seriously. She used to be. Now it's just like, she just does this. To me, scrolling through the clearance items on Home Depot or Canadian Tire is like a, a teenager on Instagram. There right you go. Like, I'm, like, I'm just scrolling, looking for, for deals. I'm like, oh, I don't have that thing yet. Let's, let's purchase that, <laughs> right? 
So she's like, oh, rolling her eyes. So I'm like, all right, all right, that. She thinks it's funny. And to be honest with you, I know she respects it. Yeah, she, that she respects the fact that I'm trying to save money. Well, that's right? a good quality to have. Yeah, if I'm, you are showing like the next 10,000 piece of machinery that you're trying to squeeze into a basement yeah. apartment, maybe that might be a little bit worrisome. Yeah, so it's like anything that I purchase, I don't have that girlfriend who is questioning that purchase. It's like, you spent how much on what? How are you, <laughs> you need, do you really need that? Um, versus like anything that I buy, she knows I bought it on sale. So uh, <laughs> she's not going to question it, right? And she knows she knows what I do. So she, and half the time, she doesn't even know what that thing is. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I know. She's just another tool to her, right? Yeah, it's like, look, $20 discount on this tool. And she's like, okay. Okay, cool. I good. know you're going to it at some point. Do they yeah. have one in blue? I don't know. Just, I don't know what <laughs> other value they can add to it. But no, it's good. All right. Now it's time for the rapid fire round. All right. Question number one, Eugene. These are rapid fire questions here. If peanut butter was not called peanut butter, what would it be called? If peanut butter wasn't called peanut butter, peanut butter, peanut mash. Peanut mash. <laughs> I was thinking peanut spread. That's what I thought when I think about because I, I remember when I saw this question, I picked it because I remember one time we were chatting maybe a few years ago where I think you were just starting to teach uh, at Senate or, or sorry, you were starting to teach and uh, you gave your, your students an assignment to create a sitting apparatus or some yeah, sitting you device. Know, you want to I use had a conversation chair. with you years ago, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, right. I That's still remember great. that. So you want to box the student's brain to say, oh, I have to make a chair. No, you said a sitting, I, I can't remember if it was apparatus. <laughs> yeah, so that's where I came up that's with this funny. question. I haven't, I, like, used, oh, this I haven't used that in a while because like, <laughs> that was when I was uh, in my early days of teaching furniture design. Right. And so now we teach props making. So I haven't yeah. actually, I'm going to bring that back up. Thank you for about that. But yeah. It, it was, bring it up, man. M mold the minds of today, man. Exactly. It was a way, it was a way of me um, not, because like the minute I say chair, almost 100% of human beings will think uh, a sitting platform, armrest and a backrest. Yeah. And maybe four legs, maybe even. Or legs, yeah, exactly. Maybe wheels on them. But the minute I see apparatus, it takes you away from that visual. So it can be anything. Yeah. And, and then right? you, you did that by design. You wanted them to think outside the box. Exactly. Right? Yes, so, exactly. All right. Next question. Yeah. If you could bring back one famous person from the dead, who would it be? I could bring back one famous person. Oh, Da Vinci, man. Da Vinci. What, what would be the question you would ask him? Oh, Wow. Uh, yeah, Da Vinci's an idol of mine. And like, turns out he was my idol before I even knew this fact that he and I share the same birthday. Really? Uh, and yeah, we're both April 15. Wow. And um, man, I would bring back Da Vinci. I'm so fascinated by that guy. Yeah. What would you ask him though? Like he's, he's sitting right in front of you. You guys are having dinner. Oh, oh Lord. Oh, I have a, I, too many to name. Too many right? to name. I'm just so fascinated by his, his life. Right. And what he's done. I think. Oh my God. I don't know. That is a hard one. Like, uh, very inquisitive, very in, you know, it couldn't just be like, so how's everything? You know, you wouldn't. That's the thing. I don't know if it would have to be inquisitive because his work is just so out there. And it's like, you can just look at the work that he's done and, uh, understand who he was as a person that, like, the one thing that I, I don't know is like he's Italian. What's your favorite pasta? Yeah, I know. It's like, you know what I mean? Like, I think I yeah. would ask something like that. It's like, yeah. what's your favorite pasta? And um, 
let's let's go hang out at your favorite restaurant. Yeah. Like, because oh, there are, there are things that you can learn about a person, not just through the stuff that they make or they do for their life, but like they're just the hobbies that they do on the side. Like, you might be a great cook. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, what's your favorite meal? Let's hang out. Yeah. You know, I think I would I would ask him something like that, right? Because I think asking him something about like, his what's work, your inspiration. You know, like, where do you come up with the ideas for your, for your yeah. work? I'm sure he, if he was alive to this day, he probably would expect a lot of people to ask him that, but literally saying, what's your favorite restaurants and your meal? Yeah. I think I would go that direction instead. I think. Interesting. No, that's, that's yeah. good. That's good. Because like, I, I think uh, for me, that's like a good jump off point is to have a meal with some, someone and understanding like, like I learn a lot of about my girlfriend through how her eating habits and the, the kind of condiments that she likes that I don't enjoy. And, um, what condiments don't you enjoy while you're at it? While we're on this question here. Oh, relish. Relish is horrible. I eat relish. (laughs) I don't enjoy sweet pickle. So that's why I don't enjoy relish. She loves relish. Oh, okay. Sweet pickle is not a big fan. Okay. You like the more, the, okay. No worries. All right. I like the salty. So I think there's, there's that, there's that element of understanding someone through just normal hmm. normal things normal life oh, right interesting all right i got uh, three more questions for you so would you rather face a fork in the road or forced to pick between three doors uh i think i would rather pick the doors there's an element of mystery there that to me sound feels more nerve-wracking but at the same time more exciting and but three options is better than two. <laughs> three is better than two. Excellent. Right? Not bad. I think I would have went with the doors too, yeah. especially if it was in the relation of, let's say, you know, you know, one could have a car, one could have money and one could have a skillet, you know, yeah. just picking one of those yeah, three, yeah. hopefully you're two out of the three are going to be okay. Uh, all right. Next, next one here. Would you rather blow up a hundred balloons or lick 500 envelopes? I think I would rather blow 100 balloons because at least I'm getting a little bit of exercise there. That's my, my same thought too. <laughs> yeah. Right. Your lungs are working. Yeah. Your lungs are working. And if my wife, my cardio is already not the greatest. So yeah. if I told, if I sell it to Miss K, look, I'm going to get a good cardio workout of blowing these 100 balloons. Yeah. She'll be like, all right, fine. Exactly. Because otherwise I can just keep relicking my tongue to get it moistened to do the envelope. Exactly. And- Both sound horrible, but at least I'm getting yes. benefits through the balloon thing. All right. Last question on this one here. What is your theme song? and why so you're walking into your shop you're walking down the sidewalk <laughs> that music plays you they know eugene's coming it's cheapos whip it whip <laughs> wow whip it whip it good it's funny it's funky it gets your movement it gets everyone smiling and it also it's like it's a let's, let's get it done kind of song interesting you know I mean? that's a good one i had some guests that you know she's like her kids were around her's like you are my sunshine whatever works whatever works yeah but uh all right so any last tips you have for the listeners on those they're wanting to either start their passion projects into the creative field love what you do i mean it's it's important to identify what makes you happy and then try to build a career off of that thing you know like for example, I, I really, I really wanted to focus more on carpentry because when I started building stuff for my shop, which was, I was building to make props and mascots or whatever, but the it, building the infrastructure for the shop uh, required me to cut wood and build tables and this and that. 
And I found that I was like totally zen when I was cutting wood again, you know, like forming wood, making furniture. I was like, oh man, I want to get back into furniture. So I made that as part of my career, but I identified the fact that I was so happy, like to the point where I was working for like seven or eight hours without even street, no break, without having to even take a sip of water, which is not healthy. But when you're so in, in the zone, um, you realize like, man, I really enjoyed doing this. Um, how can I make this as part of my career? Right. And I think that's, that's it. I mean, identify what you enjoy most, see how you can build a career on it, you know, even, even it's in any capacity, whether it's part-time on the side or full-time, as long as you're doing it, I think it's going to make your life that much more satisfying. Oh, awesome. And all right. Where can the listeners reach out to you? Uh, you can check out my website at eugeneponnell.com, E-U-G-E-N-E-P-A-U-N-I-L.com or Instagram at Ponnell Studio. And uh, yeah, and I'll be posting some new content hopefully in the next several months. Uh, just a plug, I will be showcasing a brand new art piece at uh, Nuit Blanche 2022. Oh, really? So now that the world is opening up, uh, as festivals are coming back, uh, I'll be showing a piece in, I think it's October. Um, October? Yeah, so I have... I have just under a year to get this thing going. So there's a lot to do and there's that topic. And sorry, how much work? Just one piece or you just several one pieces piece. you're doing? One piece as okay. part of Nuit Blanche, which is an all-night uh, art festival. So I'll, it'll be showcasing from sun, sunset to sunrise. Right. Wow. I'll have to see if we can make some time to come look at uh, it when it's going. So let me know when those dates are, when you know it. I'll definitely drop that info soon time. Right now, it's like I'm working out the logistics. I just had a meeting with uh, the city of Toronto in terms of like how that's going to work out and delivery dates and this and that. So it's still, it's, in, it's still in its infancy, but uh, that'll, that'll happen in later on this year. So on top of many more other things. So. All right, my friend. Well, thank you very much for being on the podcast. All right, guys, that was our episode with Eugene Ponell of Ponell Studios. Now, it was like taking me back because Eugene and I grew up as basically babies all the way up to our current friendship that's lasted pretty much our entire lives. So I think what I got from this episode is we had a lot of different things that, you know, he had a great story for almost everything that was there. But I think the two things that stood out to me, uh, especially from the small business perspective as owners, is one, do not be afraid to shop clearance. Now, even though this episode was kind of geared towards the artistic and maybe the supplies, that can be translated to any business. So if it's equipment, if it's services, or if it's some type of software, if there is a promo on that deal, so if there's a promo on that product or there's a special deal where it's 25% off, 10% off, 50% off, especially if you know you're going to use it, then definitely purchase it and invest in it right? Just because you, you can get some value out. If you know you're going to get value, you have to get it. That, that, that's just the way to it. But keep in mind though, as a caveat, if you cannot afford it, then wait, right? I don't want to give the impression of just buying for the sake of stuff on sale. Mrs. K does that for a lot of things, but, uh, and I'm guilty of it myself too. But at the end of the day, especially if you're on a shoestring budget, please manage your finances very carefully. And if you can absorb a little bit, by buying this uh, very expensive whatever it is that's on a sale and you can justify it, please do that. 
And I think the second thing that really stood out during this episode was, you know, you really pursuing your passion. Like you heard his story. He was working a nine to five. And uh, what a lot of what he, what he called disgruntled artists would do is that that's all they did. And then they just be grumpy because they're not being able to do what they want to do. Well, who's to say you're doing that now? So if you're in a current position where you're working full time and the business you want to develop or you're, that you want to start, you know, that's where your passion lies. There is nothing wrong with doing both, meaning that you can still do your nine to five job and have some time to dedicate to work on that passion project of your business that you want to do. Now, it doesn't mean you, in, in a perfect world, you would do 100% of the time on that. But in the beginning, you know, have some time to do it because that, that can really flex it, your, that muscle that you have there, that, that itch you have. Because the problem is, if you leave too quickly without securing enough funding that should something happen, you can pursue your business full time, that's going to be a problem. So if you can find a way to continue to still work on your business, look for some things for smaller clients, try to do smaller jobs, find quick jobs that maybe, you know, the rates are a little bit smaller, but at least you're getting some reps in, you're getting some sales in, you're getting some orders in just so that as you're building your business and you start to develop a really great clientele, that when the money starts to almost in line with your current day-to-day job, then you can make a decision. Do I want to stay or do I want to go? Well, guys, I had a great time doing this episode. And uh, yeah, I don't know what else to say, guys. We'll see you on the next one. Thank you for listening to the SME Stories podcast, which is owned by Northway Capital Group. Please follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Northway Capital Group.